So welcome everybody. Um, I'm Margaret Schmidt. I'm the project manager for the contract education tap. And today we're going to be spending about an hour together and I know the time is gonna fly. So uh, listen up, we've got a lot of information. I've put the PowerPoint slides in the chat and we will be recording this and posting it to our CETAP podcast. And I don't know if Micah Merritt is on the call. He is a regional director in the Bay Area and he's part of the contract education TAP team. He doesn't know that, but he helps us with our <laughs> podcast to make sure our webinars are posted. So today we're gonna to talk about expanding opportunities through employer engagement. And I really wanna do a shout out to so many people. Um, as Jonathan mentioned earlier, this is a team effort and there's no way Faith and I can do our work without all of your support. So Jonathan Bissell is from San Mateo Community College District, Deanna Crabiel from San Bernardino, Annie Rafferty and Dave Teasdale. These are practicing contract ed practitioners in the field between the four of them, I'm gonna say over 50 years experience that they bring to the table. And they helped me answer the questions that came from the regional directors. Janice Offenbach, Blaine Smith and Luann Swanberg are regional consortia chairs that I met with several times and they were very helpful. We put together a survey and they were very instrumental in getting the surveys out with other regional consortia chairs to the directors throughout the state. And we had over 34 directors and I love that all the regions were represented. Big shout out to the North Far North because they had seven <laughs> responses, but we had 34 regional directors respond and they had wonderful questions. And so what this webinar is about is to answer the questions specifically from the regional directors. And of course, we threw in a little smattering of our own of things we thought would be of interest to you. So we're gonna talk about those questions. We will cover what the benefits of contract education programs are, both just to the college and the region and also to credit and non-credit programs. And a big question from the surveys were funding. How is contract ed funded? And we will cover that today. And then, excuse, oh. excuse me, Margaret, this is Faith. Um, we have a, a question in the chat. It says, can you please repost the slides? I would do that, Margaret, but I don't have it on this computer. I'm so sorry. Okay, I will, I promise okay. to put these back up in the chat. Okay, yeah. later, okay. I can take a moment and do it now, but let me let me get through just a couple of slides and then we'll sure. try to, thank you for letting me know that. So Great. it's at the very top of the chat if you haven't seen that. And what I promise to do is your toolkit will be fuller or more full at the end of this webinar because I'm going to show you where the resources are on the Chancellor's Office website. And Faith works very hard to make sure that all of our podcasts are posted and our webinars and all of those things happen. And we have a lot of resources that will help you to learn more after today's webinar. Some of you may wonder, well, what is the regional director's relationship to contract ed? I don't even know what contract ed is. So in the contract ed TAP grant, we were asked to find the data 
about what regional directors are doing in regards to employer partnerships, business engagement. And that's what drove the need for this webinar is because there is no data collection tool for that. And I think for me and many other people, we're also asking what is the definition of business engagement? And so the beginning of this conversation is today with this webinar and with that earlier survey. The chancellor's office says that the regional director should be describing the number of work-based learning opportunities provided to students, paid or unpaid through employer partnerships. And they, what they don't say, but what their intention is, and what I found through an email with the chancellor's office was that contract education is part of the definition of work-based learning. So we want you to consider the idea that Contract education is, a, is one of the major ways of these employer partnerships and business engagement. And also imagine that contract debt opportunities could possibly create a funding mechanism for future regional director projects and positions. So that's sort of the foundation of, of why we're meeting today. One of the questions that came up from the survey is what is the difference between contract education and community education. And as you can see from this slide, contract education means those situations in which a community college district contracts, and I, I drew a big circle around the word contract in my notes, with a public or private entity for the purposes of providing instruction or services, or both by the community college. So that instruction is typically a training plan, training, Services could be consulting services. And contract ed does this for the benefit of upskilling an employee to either perform their current job or a job promotion, or they're upskilling an individual to secure a job. And we'll show you some examples of that. Community education are classes for children and adults, and they're developed basically in response to a community need some type of a survey or some form of questionnaire is developed, that feedback then helps the community ed department design what their community ed classes are going to be. And many of the community ed classes are free, although some are fee-based. It's important to note that contract ed and community ed, neither of them require admission to the college, but both offer not-for-credit classes. One of the next class, uh, questions was, how does contract education help colleges? So we have a slide here, what are the benefits of having that program? Number one is really employer engagement. The contract ed would not survive if they did not have excellent relationships with their local business and industry partners. Because if they didn't have those relationships, they would not be conducting training plans and training programs. And if they don't do that, they don't survive because you will learn that they're, they're one of their sole funding sources or one of their major funding sources is those contracts. They do not receive apportionment from the colleges. Colleges typically cannot provide standard and customized trainings in a fast response manner. Contract Ed does. They can pull up a class literally within a week to two weeks. They can have a class and have it full of participants and be offering that training. 
Contract debt also increases local economic health because when an employee has very well-trained employees, they become more competitive. They don't have to leave the state possibly. And they may even increase their employment so that helps the local economy. The other benefit for the contract ed, having a contract ed program is to be aligned with the vision for success. Because of that business engagement, it's the contract education's lifeblood, as I mentioned. And the contract ed relentlessly examines students' end goals. That training plan is all about whatever the employer or the industry partner's goals are for their incumbent worker. So therefore, the training is designed with that worker's uh, job skills in mind. Another benefit is ability to respond to unique populations. You may have heard of the Uniquely Abled program. That's um, uh, CNC, the computer, I always forget what CNC stands for, but it's, it's the Uniquely Abled program is working with autistic adults who are learning to become CNC operators. The Caltrans Workgroup Project, that's done down in San Bernardino, and that's working with adult parolees, another unique population. Has Whopper training for campfire victims was done in the North State at Butte College, and that's so that individuals who did not have jobs for the most part could go into the campfire burn area and remove hazardous materials and have the certification to do that. Contract ed can be molded to fit the specific region. As you all know, you come from unique areas. I, I grew up in the Bay Area, but now I live in the North State. They're very unique areas. So a contract ed would really mold itself to fit the needs of their local business or industry partners. Contract ed is often used as a beta test for new for credit and non-credit programs that are unit bearing. When you, when you further ask the question, benefits of a CE program, Contract Ed is excellent at piloting new curriculum. And we like to see ourselves as a continuum in the pipeline. We partner with our colleges to extend the learning opportunities to incumbent workers. We talk about lifelong learning. Maybe you have your AA degree, maybe you have your bachelor's of science, but there's so much more to learn, right? And Contract Ed, can help fill that and continue that lifelong learning well into your 60s or 70s. Adult learners may have the first college experience during a contract ed course. They may never have put a foot on a college campus before, but because of taking a for, uh, to take that contract ed class, they may be inspired to register at a college and pursue a certificate or degree. Another benefit is once you know your local employers and once you start to develop those relationships, there is a possibility to have an advisory board member come on board to ask for an in-kind donation of equipment for other college uh, campus classes. Industry provides input on the latest technology, apprenticeships, internships, and new hires. And um, I think it was Deanna Crabiel who's saying contract debt has been an excellent source for support letters for all grant applications because they have those very deep business engagement relationships. Another question we wanted to answer from the survey was the process at each college to connect employers to the CE program. And then what colleges have contract debt and best place to start for those new to CE. 
45, and I'm going to say approximately because it, it kind of moves in and out, but approximately 45 of our 115 colleges have contract ed units. Keep in mind, some of those contract ed units have a half-time person that may also cover community ed, maybe apprenticeships, and maybe have other responsibilities. So when you think of the continuum, you might have somebody that's the half-time person, but we also, I think our largest contract ed department has maybe 17 employees. I'm going to say most of them have one to five employees, though. They can be very small and cover many um, areas. If you go to this website, that is the uh, about us, I'm going to make an attempt to do this and see how we do. This website here has a list of practitioners, has a contract ed needs assessment toolkit, a marketing toolkit, uh, ETP toolkit, contract ed bootcamp. It has a lot of great information on it. And we have an Upskill California blog. If you click on this link here, that has many, many articles on it that tell you about best practices, that tell you about success stories in a variety of industries. And then we have a podcast station and the podcast station is not a complete collection, but a very diverse collection of our past webinars and also other trainings that we have done. And this is, I think, the best source for if you want to learn more about contract education, if you want to learn who in your region has contract education, um, I encourage you to go to this area. And then how to connect. You can start with the contract ed director if the college has a department. If not, we're going to show you a map and the map will let you see where your nearest contract ed director is. Contract Ed specifically offers solutions to their business and industry partners by conducting a needs assessment. So they typically, they have that meet and greet, and then they're going to go in and do a needs assessment and develop the training plan or the training, or if it's not a training need, it might be just consultation services, or it may be just connection to other services in the region, because through that needs assessment, they're going to identify what the employer needs. And... By doing that really well, they're going to develop the business engagement and that relationship that goes on and on, we hope. So the big question, how does contract education get funded? And do you receive apportionment rates? If you look at the education code, 78020, contract ed means those situations in which a community college district contracts. I covered that earlier on. The other um, piece that really deals with the funding is down here where it says, the contracting community college district or districts shall recover from all revenue sources, including but not necessarily limited to public and private sources, or any combination thereof, an amount equal to, but not less than, the actual costs, including administrative costs, incurred in providing these programs or training. And in a nutshell, what that item B is saying is that the contract ed unit is self-sustaining. 
they need to cover all of their costs by the service or product that they offer. The attendance of students in these contract ed programs shall not be included for purposes of calculating FTES for apportionment to these districts. Excuse me, Margaret, can, um, can I just ask everybody to make sure they are muted? Wonderful. Thank you. And do we have a lot in the, do we have a lot of, um, we don't have any questions thus far. I know I'm going quickly, but we definitely want to save time for your questions. So the big takeaway for me is that CE is not funded by apportionment, but by outside funding resources. We're in the process of doing a funding survey right now. And we know that ETP, which is the employment training panel, is around 35% of the funding across the state. Single uh, or the single contract employers, the employers who actually pay for the training, that's another large percentage of how contract debt is funded. There are some grants, there are some a little bit of apprenticeship money, but we'll we'll have more information about that later this spring for you. Moving on with the questions, can regional directors or um, strong workforce program funds be used? So yes, strong workforce program funds can be used for short-term contract ed training leading to employment. Strong workforce program funds can also be used for piloting programs. And dependent on the structure, because imagine each campus is very unique and the decision-making process at each campus is very unique. That's what's going to drive if those strong workforce program funds can be used at your campus or in your specific region. So it's best to consult with your regional consortia chair and your local contracted director to answer that question. So we're going to move on to show you a couple of maps, but the question came up, what is the mechanism to starting a contract ed program? And we'll show you a map that identifies where contract ed programs are existing right now. And our recommendation would be to first identify an experienced director and do your due diligence, do your environmental scan, do what, you know, that not a competitive analysis, but talk to other contracted directors before starting a program or consider partnering with an existing program before you start it. We didn't have an answer for how long does it take to create a program. Um, you know, if you have an employer that's ready to go and you have a, a campus and an administrative uh, group on your campus that's willing to support you initially, you could get a program up and running pretty quickly. If you don't have the support of your campus administration and you don't have a partner in contract ed to help you learn the process and how to do the proposals and how to do the contracts and all those things, it's going to take you longer, right? The question uh, came up on the survey, how to get all colleges to have a seamless process for hosting contract education? And to me, the simple answer is chancellor's office funding. 
Is the chancellor's office going to develop a contracted reporting platform like LaunchBoard? So what I can tell you is that we have not seen anything, but I have been told at least twice that research is being done to develop a customer relationship management tool. But that's as far as I know it's gotten is that research has been done. Nothing has been identified. If it has, it has not been shared with the contract ed tab. The question also came up on the survey, how does contract ed work? And the process for addressing faculty content review and creating custom certificates and contract education fees. So employer engagement occurs by the contract ed practitioner either responding to a request or reaching out to local businesses and industry. We have um, a consultant that we work with and he helps us statewide to identify best practices. And he really, really encourages our contracted practitioners whenever possible to have an employee that's dedicated to sales because you have to have a certain number of leads that you're processing every month in order to turn those leads into contracts in order to be self-sustaining. So it's really treated like a business. Once that contact is made with the local business or industry partner, a needs assessment is typically conducted and then a proposal is developed and those fees as we saw in the education code need to cover the training plan, the cost of the facilitator, any training materials, overhead and other training specific expenses. The training plan can be developed from scratch because oftentimes you're working with an employer and it's very customized for that one employer. Or sometimes training plans or training material is purchased from a vendor like Development Dimensions International. It does not require faculty content review. Training plans are specifically designed to meet the employer's goals or needs. Because imagine if they were doing a training that did not meet their needs, they probably wouldn't get called again. And if they're not called again, they're not gonna be self-sustaining. So it's all about making sure that employer is happy and that the employees are getting the upskilling necessary to either stay in their job, go to the next job, or maybe obtain a job. Employers request specific training and the practitioners recommend and design that training plan and select the facilitator for that specific client. And really, you know, that, that is so important. You can have a facilitator that knows nothing about the industry and they have no stories to tell during the training and they have no way to answer the additional questions that might pop up during a training. So that selection of the facilitator is really critical. Some trainings are very standard. You can go to a contracted unit and take an Excel one, an Excel two, a Microsoft suite class, while others are very highly customized. I know for instance, up in the North State, we have a lot of food processing companies. I know of one that brought in a very specific piece of equipment and they brought in their contract ed professional here locally to do a training just on that specific food processing equipment. Another one had a very specific job interview process and they wanted all of their employees to go and learn how to be on a job interview committee. So that was designed specifically and very highly customized for that client. 
We have the utility line clearance training that is being developed right now statewide so that people can be trained and work for the utility companies or the subcontractors to clean the trees out from under the utility lines because of the massive fires that we've had here in California. Another very common question on the survey is what sectors are receiving ETP funding and what are the current regional and statewide collaborative projects? And I would like to turn it over to Annie uh, Rafferty. She's with Butte College, the training place, and have her uh, answer the next three slides, I think. So thank you, Annie. Yeah, you bet. Thanks, Margaret. Yeah, so good morning, everyone. Um, uh, I know there's uh, lots of questions around the employment training panel and really good questions that we received in the survey. And the employment training panel is a, is a long-term great partner of the California community colleges that we've had great success with. Um, we, as an upskill California and collaborative um, off of our strategic plan in 2018, developed one of our goals to collect a uh, comprehensive data report based off of credible outcomes and payroll data. And that data is collected through um, our contracts that we have with our employers that utilize the ETP funds. And so to answer this question that you have in front of you here, we thought it would be great to bring out highlights from that report so that everyone can get a good understanding of the scalability and the reach from our 2018, or sorry, our 2010 to our 2018, an eight-year collection of data from contracts that were delivered across the state. So uh, depending on uh, your, your view on your screen and where you've got the boxes, you can, you can see it a little bit closer. Um, but this particular map uh, shows the impact of the contract education regional and some co subcontracted colleges of the employer engagement impact and county served. So over to the right, the participating community colleges are represented with the map that you see um, on the right-hand side. So that the, the data that was included in this report. So the multiple employer contract holders, which is a MEC, are represented in a black diamond and in caps on the right. The subcontracted colleges are represented with a green, with a green circle and they're also on the right. So on the map, what we found was most powerful was really taking a look at the employers and the county served through contract education and these colleges and a collaborative relationship that is a contract relationship. And so, and it's only based on outcomes and performance. So we're not giving the money up front and said, here, now you can spend it and then tell us how it went. We're only paid in a reimbursement model based on outcomes and criteria established by the employment training panel. So the trainee needs to meet a 90-day retention, there is a wage requirement, and there is an employer priority uh, eligibility requirement to engage in the project. So this map represents uh, uh, 743,000 hours, 
And the map down below is the impact of percentage of those hours that were delivered by counties. So as you can see down south is the longevity of the relationship with the employment training panel and the employers. And so there is a, um, you can really see the impact. Up north, um, our, um, you know, we're the only black diamond up north. <laughs> and we were, we established our black diamond in 2013 with five trusted employers. And so now, um, you know, we're proud to say that our region is, is really starting to grow. And you can see the counties that, um, are not represented here of Modoc, Trinity, and, and then down um, to the Tulare and Visalia area, there's some outs, um, outreaching areas there that haven't been served yet. So this was 2010 to 2018. Okay, next slide. So the overall impact, which is the bottom line, right? So we're it's important to take a look at what's the overall impact. So. The trainee, uh, 3,000 employers, 172,000 trainings. So that's the impact on trainees. So how many trainees participated uh, in these programs? So there were 45,654 trainees that earned a wage, and there were 20% of that population that had a wage gain and a career uh, advancement in their upskill experience with us, uh, and that was 20% after the training. The retention is 97%, and the richness of that when we define employer engagement is the relationship that we hold long-term. So we're not going in with just one training. We're going in with a holistic approach of what's the long-term relationship with that employer, what are their company goals, and how are their employees advancing in skills to meet those goals, and where are the gaps, and so where can we work together? The cost of the training is a lower cost, especially compared to outside consultants. So again, the community college partnership with ETP leverages those dollars um, that are invested by the employers through the state of California through their unemployment tax are leveraged at $728 a person, and that's an average of 40 hours. So, you know, it's going to depend on the actual uh, trainees themselves. So uh, we're still on the other side. I think somebody hit a button. Back, please. Thank you. All right. And then the last is, which was a really interesting aspect of our, when we talk about what brings, uh, what's the value out of these trainings, uh, one is how does it impact the, the employee and their experience of working with the employer, but then how does it impact the state of California? So $450 of revenue actually brings back an average annual new tax per trainee in that regional hour, in that regional area. That was a really powerful number for us. And so when we started to look at that, our bottom line impact based on the outcomes of the training and really made us look at how many colleges have been participating through contract education, getting more awareness around what we do, how we contract with an employer, and how we bring value back to that region even if we just doubled what we were doing now, because as you can see, if we have 116 community colleges, you know, having about 38 to 42 colleges perform this work, if we were able to double that, what would that impact be across California? 
All right. So I'm going to pass it back to Margaret and uh, welcome questions. Annie, thank you so very much for explaining those those two slides and very important piece of what we're trying to cover today. Oh, I see Rock's got a question here, yes. if I can answer that. Yes. Um, hi, Rock. Good to, good to hear you and uh, kind of see you online. Yeah, um, hi. Yeah, so great question. So how are the wage gains measured? So over the eight years of the data that was collected, we hold, I mean, I even know some of the trainees' names in our contracts. We know how long they've been with us. So we collect as part of the enrollment process their wage that they started with, and there's a post-retention wage requirement for eligibility with ETP. So we measure that contract over contract. And so that data is collected by the trainees um, being in on our enrollment information. So the way the data was compiled was being able to take the colleges that were listed um, on the map there and took all of the trainees and then we showed, you know, what were the wages that they had pre and post over a period of time. And do you know when the post is measured? Uh, each contract is a, is, uh, a two-year period. Most of the districts down south, and we're starting to get the cadence up north, they may um, work through a contract closer to a year versus the two years. Um, and so it's going to, it would depend on the start and end time of that particular project. Uh-huh. So when it's measured by... Ends, you take that measurement. That's and correct. Can I, weigh, can I weigh in? Sure, go for it. Um, I just want to make it clear. So that was uh, 2010, 2018 data. That's not eight. That's not the eight-year wage gain. That's just what we end up having to report to the employment training panel. So what Annie said is usually it's related to the end of the contract, but the ETP requirement is that they stay with the employer 90 days after the end of training uh, in order to uh, uh, for us to receive reimbursement. So really that wage gain is... Um, in most cases, significantly less than two years. Um, and in a lot of cases, it's uh, less than a year. It's just the, the wage reported uh, for that 90-day retention period. Um, so that doesn't reflect that they've only gained 20% in wages over the eight years from their 2010 training. It's usually uh, two years or less they receive that 20%. Impressive. Yeah, yeah thanks, Dave. And so the I just wanted to um, add, I was going right there with Dave on that. On the ETP, everyone, as Dave said, everybody has to have a 90-day retention. We measure their rates before they start training, and then we measure their rates when they complete their training. And that training can be a two-year, it could be 90 days. But once they complete that training, that's when the 90-day retention starts and at the 90-day retention is when we measure their wage again. And so we do that for every contract that we do. Thanks, Deanna. And then the retention period that's referenced there is based off of that contractual period that they stayed with the contract. So it's part of the retention. Uh, and that ni- so as we're talking about 90 days being the requirement, 97% stay in that. And we can see based off of who drops out of a contract. So if we had to drop employees or terminate them. Um, and so that's how that was measured. 
and the $450 of revenue, that's actually detailed in the report. So I don't want to misspeak on how that was calculated, but in the report, there are excellent charts that um, hold the demographics because we also collect, you know, their age, ethnicity, their education levels. Um, so there's some really great data, data in there based off of the profile of the trainee that we're required to report on upfront. So um, I would point you to the calculations that are in the report on how the tax revenue um, and how that was calculated um, and welcome some further conversations about that. But um, I wasn't the one that actually did the measurement on the calculation there. Um, I just know that we were a recipient of that and started to take a look at like, wow, that's an interesting aspect to, to measure. Right, thank you. Annie, we have yeah, you two more questions in the chat. The first one is, are the results based off ETP only or does it include other CE projects? Yeah, great question. So the results here are reflected on ETP based off of payroll data on ETP projects only. And the reason why is our other projects are self-reported. There is not a database that is based off of an individual standardized enrollment process. And we felt it was most powerful to be able to demonstrate what is our strength to the state of California, saying, here's our strength. This is the relationship with the employer. We have an HR payroll data that gets verified not only on what we report, but EDD verifies on the back end. And we only get paid, only get paid a reimbursement for expenses based off of trainees meeting that criteria. So great question, Trudy. Thank you. And then the other question is, what is the most common type of training done under ETP? Uh, okay, so as part of the report, I'm also, I think we should send a link to the report, Margaret, as a result of our session here. There, there are charts, and the training is defined by priorities set by the employment training panel. So that would be manufacturing, healthcare, IT, and uh, you know, green technologies, uh, construction, uh, and there's a list of set industry priorities. And then the training within those sectors, you can see there's um, a lot of supervisory training, there's technical training um, for that specific sector, uh, communication type of training, Excel and computer training. So the priorities that are set by the panel is one. The second that leads to this answer about the training programs is the categories that the employment training panel sets, and that is business skills, uh, computer skills, management skills, and they're done by categories. And there's also um, uh, technical skills for each industry that are included in the delivery. Yeah, so thanks, thank you, and that was Diane. Hopefully that answered your question, Diane, and any others that wanted to chime in, but that's the source of it, and the charts are great. Thank you, and I'm, I'm attempting to upload the link to that report right now. It'll be in the chat. It just takes a moment to upload. It's a large, large file. Um, if, if a training is already available outside of your region, district, could you utilize this training or employers should only utilize trainings from their district and region? Um, yeah, good question. So 
Um, so uh, several of our multiple employer contract holders have the ability to uh, work collaboratively across the state. And that means that answering your question, trainings outside of our area um, can be done through a collaborative project that we would engage with that district serving that local employer. Um, you know, for example, uh, Shasta and San Mateo are subcontracts uh, and, and Sierra College are subcontracts with Butte here. So we're working with that employer on a local level uh, to be able to provide access to funding and access to training resources outside of the area, um, but working together to do that. And the other districts, um, you know, Deanna and Dave and some others who are on the line here, um, they also they also engage in that uh, in the same way. On the just to chime in real quick, Jonathan here, on the fee for service side, so non ETP contract education, um, it could be anywhere in the country or in the world. In fact, and we often collaborate and partner on that. In fact, one of my colleagues uh, contracted colleagues from a different part of the state. And I had a conversation yesterday, they're getting their unit off the ground and they wanted to uh, partner with us to leverage some of our trainings. And so I think you'll find as you get into this world a little bit that it is incredibly collaborative. And ultimately it's all about putting the best uh, training forward to serve the employers and their employees. And so that's how we operate. Um, so it's, it's different than on the credit side where it might be very strict boundaries uh, geographically, we tend to um, work very collaboratively in this space. Mm -hmm. Where the the boundary is still there, but meaning that the lens from the employer sees that whoever the local college is is being represented, but they're leveraging the strength of the collaborative training outside of their area mm -hmm. on a local level. So we still, so like for example, so if Jonathan has, so if Jonathan, you have something down there and it's a trainer that we're bringing from up here, you're representing that client on a local level, but we're working together behind the scenes to bring that to the employer. So the employer always sees us as a we, and that's what's most important, that we're not confusing the employer of where they're coming from, that we represent the California Community College system as a we and it's not, you know, Butte College showing up in San Mateo, we're really pushing the local college so that they can see that local resource. And that's, you know, that's how we honor. Um, and that's what's most critical of how we show up for the employer. I love all the nodding heads. <laughs> it, looks, it is truly collaborative. Okay. So the, the report that Annie is referencing that they worked for a long and hard time on, and it's, it's an amazing report, it's, it's going to be in the chat. Just keep an eye on it. It's still uploading, so you can download it. I'll I'm be surprised if you can upload. You might have to do something afterwards so that you point everybody to the website because um, it's a big report. Yeah, I can send the link to the regional consortium chairs who can forward it out to their region. Group. Looks like it loaded. Okay, perfect. Okay. Uh, Margaret, can you yes. answer Mike Bastine's question about if we have an example of a CE training program for people to get employed versus upskilling? Yes, yes. And I gave several examples of that early on. So the Uniquely Able program that's out of College of the Canyons, which is the CNC program, works with autistic adults 
and trains them in the CNC world. And then they help them by teaching them how to do interviews. And And Mike's program. Yeah, that's Mike Bestine's program. And and then another one that was another example was the Haswhopper training where uh, the local contract ed unit at Butte College worked with the Alliance for Workforce Development and identified individuals who were not employed. They went through a Oh, Annie, helped me a six to eight week program to go through the Haswhopper training and a first aid class. Mm-hmm. We trained over 633 people, 20 cohorts, and we had 87% placed in jobs. Um, and then on the chainsaw, chipper, and grounds ops, we had four cohorts and 82 out of 83 people were placed into jobs and retained in the program. And so that led to another, our other largest program right now, which is the utility line clearance statewide, um, where we have funded by PG&E, and that will provide an upskilling training to a centralized utility line clearance arborist program um, and up-and-coming pre-inspector. And uh, so those would be some good examples that include uh, even your program, Mike. And I wanted to add in there, too, that we also work with special populations, homeless. We work um, with justice involved. Last year, even under COVID, we served 150 justice involved individuals and we placed 90 of them into permanent full time employment, which saved the state on an annual basis over seven million dollars. So we we work with many different aspects. This is just one population in one area that contract education works under. Thank you. Thank you guys so much. And I, and I always do say thank you for what you do in your communities. It's, it is amazing. And I think it's, it's unknown often. So that's one of the purposes of our webinar today is to sort of capture some of those success stories. So for the sake of time, I'm going to keep us moving forward and we'll, we do have time for questions. So how can a regional director support contract education? This was one of the questions that came out of the survey. And we would like to encourage you to contact your regional consortia chair and schedule a contract education presentation specifically for your region, because that way you can meet your local contract ed colleagues. You can learn about your local projects in your region. And if you do come across a business or an industry and you hear the word, I have an urgent training need. I have something that needs to be trained right away. Those are some of the key terms where you would then say, hey, let me get a hold of my local contract ed practitioner. Let's get everybody together. And the contract ed practitioner can do the needs assessment that's necessary to design an appropriate training plan. Those are the kind of the primary things that we came up with on how to um, connect the regional director with their local contracted practitioner. And the regional consortia chairs know who their local people are. They're a wonderful resource for you to use in that. Margaret, I have a question for you from Luann Swanberg. Hi, Luann. (laughs) It says, what impact has remote learning had on CE? Oh, boy. Well, um, that's a great question. Very early on, I'd say March of um, 2020, 
Faith and I did a survey of our local contract ed folks, or I'm sorry, not our local, our statewide. And then we redid the survey, I think two weeks later. And I can pull that survey results up for you, but just off of the top of my head, millions of dollars of lost training. And the quick, quick, quick turnaround of on the ground classes to virtual. And I'm looking at the great photo of Jonathan here. Jonathan uh, Bissell, along with Claire Laughlin and Rayanne Yanello, pulled together a boot camp for all of our contracted facilitators to learn how to take on the ground classes and trainings and put them in a virtual setting. And we did that boot camp. We got it started. Was it in May, I think? Uh, John? Uh, yeah. Like April or probably okay. late April, early May. We knew we needed to respond quickly to help them flip their classes from on the ground to virtual. Um, so we, we did what we could do, but Luann, it's a good question. It was painful, a lot of lost money, a lot of lost revenue. Um, you know, it depended on the employer if they were willing to accept a virtual platform or not, not all of them could. And, uh, so if I could just add, oh, go ahead. I just wanted to add in, yeah, it was, um, our revenue, uh, is probably down about 50%, um, uh, since uh and so that's not i mean it could have been it could have been worse um so it's just anecdotal in our region but i i think we're going to also have some pent-up demand because there like you said margaret not not all the employers wanted to convert to an online um and as we are able to go out and do trainings uh there seems to be a lot of demand for that so i think um we could be busy the second half of the year and into um, 2022 with pent-up demand for training that didn't occur during COVID. And I'll just add a quick note. Um, while we did have a really heavy impact initially, uh, for us, we also discovered that the online space provided an opportunity for new clients across the country. So on a monthly basis, I get a handful of uh, training inquiries from various states. Um, and so we've expanded our marketing uh, to reflect that and to be able to respond to needs across the country. And then we've also gotten new types of clients. Um, and, you know, we've developed a whole range of new relevant online, live online interactive trainings, like many of my colleagues to just be responsive. And so the impact has been disparate across the state depending on the types of businesses. But because we're always thinking about how do we quickly respond to employers, I think we've also all developed some new strategies or in the process of doing that. So as Margaret mentioned, the boot camp. so we actually have an upcoming uh, session, I think in April for directors to dig into those strategies and talk about them. And no one has it completely figured out, but that's where we collaborate and try to adjust to the, the times that we live in right now. Thank you. Any other questions for, uh, we have some of, the, some of the top notch practitioners on the call with us and if Faith and I can't answer the questions, we know they can, so. Um, uh, I think just, I can add a comment, um, Margaret. I think on the where the opportunity is, when we think about the, uh, you know, remote learning, and the remote engagement. 
we responded to those businesses who went remote. Mm -hmm. So our, our clients changed because the essential businesses, they continued to work. And so some districts had authorization to go and work at that employer and do customized training on site underneath COVID safe practices at that site. But that was really far and few between. So if you think about where the impact was, you have essential businesses who are trying to figure out how do I get a learner online when the value of going to the college was the facility and the content and the engagement and that essential worker, the, uh, you know, changing shifts, adding a third shift. Uh, they were focused on COVID practices for a significant period of time. So I think to Dave's point, we are going to see that rebound as we start to repopulate at our, at our districts in serving essential businesses. Thank you, Annie. So any regional directors, if you want to unmute yourself, and this is your time, we've got about five minutes left. Um, and again, we are recording this session. It will be posted to our podcast. It doesn't happen overnight, but we'll get it done probably within the next three to four business days. And then you now have a copy of the slides. Is there any other questions? Margaret, you mentioned something about apprenticeships and how uh, contract ed is uh, associated or being related to apprenticeship uh, programs. Well, good question, Mike. When we did our funding survey, um, a couple of our contract ed practitioners made a note that they do have some funding from the apprenticeship program. I personally don't have any specifics on those programs. Um, any of our practitioners on the call today have experience with that? I, I guess I can speak a little bit to that on the utility line clearance, the union, we're working close with the union on uh, an apprenticeship model, uh, but the, the union working with the contractors is moving towards a certification versus an apprenticeship. But from a U.S. perspective, California, and we're taking the lead um, in a collaborative pre-apprenticeship model because everything that's in our program is what the uh, other states are looking at and the Utility Arborist Association. So, um, so that's one example where there's development in what would fit for an apprenticeship model. I think the second would be underneath advanced manufacturing and more in particular employers where the employers were registering apprenticeship and being able to support uh, particular employers that we had a long-term relationship with that um, they were developing programs. So, and I don't know if Dave, you have some other examples that you might be able to highlight. Well, I just wanted to to, uh, to let everybody know that the um, the way apprenticeships run is it does not have to be a four credit class that's linked to that we we are LEAs, but it could be a contract ed class. Mm -hmm. um, and, and to me, the advantage is that gets back to earlier in the presentation um, uh, about piloting a program. So if you have uh, uh, an uh, employer or a group of employers in, say, say, in advanced manufacturing, you could get an apprenticeship started using contract ed classes, and then you could go through the process of getting them created as non-credit or credit for apportionment down the road. You don't have to wait for that entire curriculum review process to get it started. 
Yeah, that's a good point, Dave. That actually surprised me. The first meeting I had with um, uh, Charles Richards from the state and uh, from the Department of Apprenticeship Standards, and we were mapping it for a client who had enrolled with American River College. Um, They're located over in Willows in our Glen County area. And looking at the menu, they were picking some of our training place, Butte College contract ed classes, some of the classes that were online, some of the classes through um, the IBW electrical program, like it was a menu. And I was, and I really thought it only had to be a program that was for credit at that point. So I think the, and it, and it seemed much easier than I originally thought too. It felt very complicated, but when you drilled it down, it was a menu. They had to define it by hours, the commitment of the employer, um, and that apprenticeship's journey um, through, you know, during work and after work of being able to accomplish the hours of instruction. It was it was, it was fascinating to me. <laughs> it's like eye opener. Okay, um, regional directors. Any other questions? Well, without further ado, then we just want to say thank you so much for participating today. And I really greatly appreciate the regional consortia chair group that that worked with me and um, the contract education practitioners that worked to help develop this presentation. It's amazing as always to work collaboratively. If you have further questions, your regional consortia chair cannot answer it for you, please reach out to Faith and I. Here's our phone numbers, here's our um, email addresses, and I really encourage you to look at our website on the Chancellor's Office uh, website because it has a lot of information on it that can help you.